Good morning. If I've not met you, my name is Owen Bechtel. Um, I'm not one of the regular pastors at Restoration. I'm just a member, and I lead the college ministry called Campus Outreach at American University. Um, happy to be with you all this morning as we continue to worship God through looking at Psalm 47. So you can turn, I don't know if Joey said this, to turn to page 472 in your pew Bible, which is right in front of you and the little cubby in front of you if you don't have a Bible with you. And so we're going to spend our time now going through this psalm. And I love this psalm as I've studied it. This psalm teaches us that God is king over the nations and not just that theological truth, but that we should be joyful in our response to this reality. God is king. He is the ultimate and the highest authority in the world and in your personal life. And this is something that should have a joyful, joyful response. And as I processed this just truth in my own life this week, it caused me to reflect on authority figures that I have had in, in my life. And maybe you've been doing that today. Today is Father's Day. And one that quickly came to my mind was my college baseball coach at George Washington University just down the road named Greg Ritchie. Now, if there's one thing that college or former college athletes love to do, it's to complain about their coach. They love to complain about their coach. I've met literally college athletes randomly who I don't know. And I'll ask, like, how do you, how'd you like your coach? And they will look at me just beaming, so happy. And they'll go, he was such a jerk. And it's, we just have this bond. It's just like this bond that you have with another college athlete because you just, you just bond over, you just hate your coach, right? But I had the, the great, but sadly uncommon experience of having a college coach that I just loved. I loved him. So he was actually a former GW baseball player himself in the mid 1980s. Uh, he destroyed everybody in our conference, the Atlantic 10. He beat up every team down the mid Atlantic and got drafted to go play for the Giants organization. And in baseball, it's not like some other sports where you get drafted and go right to like the, the top, the highest level. In baseball, you always go to what's called the minor leagues, which is a, is a really hard system. Of there's, there's five levels that you usually have to ascend until you get to the major leagues. And so it can be a long and hard and just a, a very emotional process to go through the minor leagues. And most players don't even get through the minor leagues. Um, go talk to Nathan if you want to hear more about that. <laughs> most players like me and Nathan don't make it to the major leagues. And so my coach had seriously like the nightmare of a minor league baseball player. He played for 10 years, 10 years, probably making less than $1,000 a month, living like in hotels and traveling on buses, uh, probably a little AC on these buses too, for 10 years with that dream of making it to the major leagues. And he got literally as close as you can get, like as close as you can get, and did never, he never got called up to the major leagues. It's, it's sad. But uh, after his career, he became a coach within the Giants organization. Uh, and then eventually the White Sox and the Pirates, and he just kept climbing up the ladder of coaching from, you know, coaching now. He made it to the top of the minor league ladder, then he goes to the bottom of the minor league coaching ladder, but made it all the way up until 2009, he got his dream job, the hitting coach of the Pittsburgh Pirates, the hitting coach. That is one of, this got to be one of the best jobs in the world. And he flourished in that role for a few years. He, he even had a guy named Andrew McCutcheon who won the MVP while he was a coach there. And Andrew was a guy who that my coach started coaching when Andrew was 18 years old in the lowest level of minor league up till he was an MVP. It's just incredible. And so at the same time as this 2012, my team GW is just struggling. So we have a lot of, we have a lot of talent on our team, but we underperform. We have a lot of losing seasons and our athletic director somehow convinces major league hitting coach, Greg Rishi to come back to his alma mater to be our head coach. In the college baseball world, this was like groundbreaking news. This is crazy. When our team found out this, it was so funny. A bunch of like big, strong college athletes in a dorm room finding out this news, and we're like jumping up and down giddy. 
Like, we're so excited, like squealing that Greg Ritchie is coming to GW. And we knew that he was going to be a good coach and a good talent developer. But we'd also just heard from players of his and from the past and different GW alumni that he was such a loving and sincere and caring person. And he just loved his players and treated them well. And in my two years that I played under him, that's exactly what I experienced. He was the perfect baseball coach. He made each of us want to work hard and become better players and better leaders. He was that perfect mixture where he was super kind and loving, but he was not a pushover whatsoever. And he was a man you just, you just wanted to respect him, right? Not like a man who like commanded it, but like you just wanted to respect him because he was such a great man. And I just loved playing and just being just, just growing as a man under his leadership. And so I tell you this story as we go to Psalm 47, thinking about what authority figures do you have in your life that you have flourished under? That, that like what I'm doing right now, that you want to just praise, that you were excited to talk about, that you have a smile on your face as you reflect on their leadership. And as we're going to Psalm 47, this is all about praising and rejoicing over God, the perfect and highest authority, clapping, singing, and rejoicing because God is the king of our lives. That's what the psalm is all about. So much joy. And so as we go into Psalm 47, I want you to keep that, that kind of thought in your mind. Like, who is an authority that you have flourished under and that you love and that you, you love to praise? And as a quick background, before I read this psalm, if you can open it up now, if you haven't yet, uh, your Bible might have this subheading uh, to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. And so this psalm was most likely written during the, the reign of King David, who wrote most of the psalms. Yet it was not attributed to him, but the sons of Korah who they were this group, this, this, this group of people within the tribes of Israel, and they were the leaders of like the choral and the orchestral music within the temple or, or the tabernacle at this time. So they were like the, they were the music, they were the worship leaders. And so they penned this psalm and verse five gets a, gives us a hint. And I'll explain more about verse five later that this might've been written after a military victory of Israel over the Philistines. And so just keep that in mind. Psalm of the sons of Korah written during the reign of King David. So let's read this psalm now together. Psalm 47, 1 to 9. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. So again, this theme of joy and singing and celebration for the king is seen all throughout this psalm. It said countless times, (coughs) sing praises, shout with loud songs of joy. We see it again and again. And the main reason for this joy, what we see here is that God has established himself as king over all the earth. That's the main reason for the joy. (coughs) God has established himself as king over all the earth. And the Psalm can be split pretty, pretty nicely into two sections. And so I'm going to have two main points in my sermon. And so in verses one to five, we have references to these major Old Testament events that show how God established himself as king, how God was building his kingdom over all the earth. (laughs) And then in verses six to nine, we see praises to God for his present rule and reign over the earth. And so my two points to say them again, 
Point one is verses one to five. God established himself as king. God established himself as king. And number two is God reigns over the earth. (coughs) God reigns over the earth. Those are my two points. And so let's look now at verses one to five. So God established himself as king. And so this word established, it must be nuanced a little. So the Bible is clear that God is and always has been king. He always has been king. So Jeremiah 10.10 says this, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. He has been king for all eternity, everlasting. There was never a time when God was not king over all peoples of the earth. But what we see in the Bible is that the story of God as king is going alongside. It's coinciding with the creation of mankind, the multiplication of mankind, and the building of God's kingdom. So God has entered into the human story, right, in Genesis 1. And he is now building his kingdom. The king is building his kingdom. What we see all throughout the the Bible is that due to mankind's, their sin and their rebellion against God, they are constantly rebelling and rejecting God as king and living as if they did not have a king. This is true of the pagan nations, but also of God's own people, Israel. So what we have in the first half of this psalm is a history of how God established himself as king, and this is key. It's not only in Israel, right? If you have a familiar background with the Old Testament, you know that God chooses Israel to be his people and to be the, the king over them. But this psalm is saying that God is king of the world, not just Israel, the whole world. And so you may be wondering what exactly the kingdom of God is. This, this phrase is often used in Christian contexts. Let me summarize it for you just in a few main components. Like what is God's kingdom? God's kingdom is really this. It's God's people, first of all, God's people. Second of all, living in God's place, living in God's place. Third, living in God's presence and especially living under God's rule as king. So God's people. So the people whom God has chosen that joyfully submit to him as king. That's God's people. God's place, the physical territory and space that constitutes the kingdom. There is no kingdom if there is not a place for people to live in. And third, living in the presence of God and under his rule as king. So that's a very simple summary of what God's kingdom is. And this theme of the kingdom is a main storyline in the Bible. So let's just take a quick look through the Old Testament at this theme of the the kingdom of God. So in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 to 3, we see God create Adam and Eve with the command to be fruitful and be and multiply saying, go have children who will have children who will have children who will fill the earth with my image bearers. All the while God will be with them as their King and their Lord. And so at the beginning, Eden was the kingdom of God, Adam and Eve living under God's rule in God's place. But the intention was for the whole earth to become God's kingdom, the whole earth to become his kingdom as the people multiplied and spread. And we see three chapters in, the disruption to God's kingdom that comes when Adam and Eve rebel against God, when they sin and reject God as king. And what happens is they are expelled from the garden of Eden and they are no longer in the direct presence of the Lord. And so their relationship with God has been corrupted by their sin. So the kingdom of God is three chapters in and we already see the three components of God's kingdom broken because of mankind. They rebelled against God. So they're no longer truly God's people. They are separated from God now in their sin. And they are also physically, they are, they're expelled from the Garden of Eden. And they no longer are going to, to live. They're going to be scattered throughout the whole earth. But the whole earth is not going to be God's kingdom now. It's going to be filled with people who have this corruption of sin and who reject God. And so we, we see, though, that God does not give up on his people. And so in Genesis 12, we find a beautiful promise 
from God to this man, Abram, which should be in the screen. Uh, Genesis 12 says this, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. So in this promise, we see all three of these components. First, we see the, the place is promised. God says, go to, the, go to this land that I will show you and I will give you. So God is preparing a land for his kingdom. Second, he promises a people. So in verse two says, God, God says, I'm going to make of you, Abram, a great nation. So his descendants, this man, Abram's descendants are going to multiply to be so great that they're going to be an entire nation of people. And then third, what we see is though it's, it's kind of implied is that God's presence is going to be with this people. God says, whoever dishonors you, I'm going to curse him. And whoever blesses you, I'm going to bless. So God is going to protect and take care of and be very directly involved with Abram's people. He's going to care for them. And so God's people and God's place, God's presence. So we see that that is still God's plan. And from this point in Genesis 12 until the time of our Psalm, which is during the reign of David, we see God fulfilling this promise and establish his kingdom. So the people of God, they do multiply until they become the nation of Israel. And what we see is in Exodus, they are actually enslaved by the people, by the Egyptians because Pharaoh goes, this people is so huge. Like they're going to overtake us unless we overtake them. And so leads them or, or God then leads them out of slavery, crossing the Red Sea, that, that famous Old Testament uh, historical event. And he leads them into the wilderness where they wander for 40 years with God until eventually they go to the land of Canaan. They, they conquer the people that are living there. Um, we're going to see that in verse three. And then eventually it gets to the point where Israel is dwelling in the promised land with God as, uh, as their God. And so this is all very important background information for Psalm 47. That was, that was a very quick overview. But what we see is that God has now brought his people into Canaan, who he has chosen, and he is now dwelling with them. So we see God's kingdom is actually here in this Psalm, Psalm 47. And so again, but what we're going to see is this Psalm is not just celebrating that Israel is under the reign of God, but that the whole world is under the reign of God, the whole world. And so what we're going to look at in verses one to five is how God has established himself as king over the whole world. And so if you look at verse three with me, it says this, he subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. So think back to that, again, that Red Sea crossing. He is guiding his people through the Red Sea, and he crushes the Egyptian army in an instant. So this powerful act of God had become known to the pagan nations around Egypt, and this had caused the people to fear the Lord. And so listen to this testimony of Rahab. Rahab is a Canaanite, so a person living in Canaan, one of those nations that's against God. She's living in Canaan, and she interacts with two Israelite spies in Joshua 2. And listen to what she says. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab is verifying exactly what the psalmist is saying in verse 3. God's military acts of subduing the nations are leading 
the, the nearby nations, the world, to fear and tremble before God. Fear and tremble before him. The book of Joshua then, after this story in Joshua 2, tells the history of Israel actually conquering all of these nations that are inhabiting and surrounding the promised land of Canaan. So these nations were worshiping false gods. They were living in wickedness. And God judged these nations through his people Israel by subduing them, by conquering them. And at the present day of this psalm, it was likely that Israel was still conquering and subduing nations around them, even though they were firmly established in the promised land at this point. Which is, that's what verse 4 is actually focused on. So look down at verse 4 with me. It says this, He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. We must understand this in light of verse 3, which is about the conquest of Canaan. And so verse 4 is saying that the promised land is the heritage. That's what the ESV says. Or another translation might say inheritance. Essentially, it's God's gift to his people, Israel. So the word Jacob, just another word for the people of Israel, this promised land is a gift from God to his people giving it to them. And the promised land is described in this way, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. So this word pride might throw you off as it threw me off a little bit this week, right? So usually pride associated with mankind is bad. We don't like pride, but we have clues that this word pride doesn't mean what we normally associate with pride because the the verse finishes with the phrase Jacob, whom he loves. So it seems like it's a good thing that's going on here since he's talking about how he loves his people. So I looked up synonyms for this word pride, and the, the synonyms are the words majesty, excellency, and glory. So majesty, excellency, and glory. So the promised land, what it's saying is the promised land was the glory of Israel. It was the, the glory, the majesty of Israel. And not just because the land is good, which it was, but because God had given it to them and God was going to dwell with them. It was their most glorious possession because God was with them there. So this promised land was a sign of God's love for Israel and his faithfulness towards them. And then in verse five, look down at this. We have this statement. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. So I believe this is referencing second Samuel five. So I told you I'd get back to this. I think this is second Samuel five, which speaks of Israel's victory over this nation of the Philistines and this triumphal military procession that followed, this victory parade. And so 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 25 uh, should pop up on the screen. I'm going to read this for you, talking about this historical event. And David did as the Lord commanded him, and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bale Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And then down in verse five says this, and David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And then jumping down to verse 13. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord. Now listen to this with shouting and with the sound of the horn, the shouting and the sound of the horn. So what we're seeing is that David and Israel had defeated the Philistines in battle. And it's because of God. It's not because of their strength, but God has shown his power and his might. And then our attention is directed to this ark of God, which is the symbolic throne of God. It says in the, in the verse there enthroned on the cherubim, he is enthroned on, on this ark. That is where God's presence and God's rule is. The symbolic picture of it. 
And so the ark is being brought back to Jerusalem after they have defeated their enemies. And Israel is celebrating with songs and instruments, a victory parade, celebrating that, that God had majestically and powerfully defeated these enemies of theirs on their behalf. And so David, it says, he brings up the ark with shouting and with the sounds of a horn. And so go back to Psalm 47.5. Now think about this with me. I think this is a powerful reminder. God is the enthroned almighty king who subdues nations and conquers kingdoms. He has no true rival. Nobody can stand against him. No kingdom can stand against him. And so in the Old Testament period, this is how other nations came to know God's power and God's kingly rule was by God wielding it against these wicked nations, these surrounding nations of Canaan. And so God was demonstrating that it was not the strength of Israel's army that had conquered them, but it was the strength of the almighty God. So God's subduing of these nations, it was a painful and devastating uh, reality for these nations, but it was also a merciful way for God to reveal the gods that you're worshiping are false. And the God of the Israelites is true. He is the one true God. And not only that, but you should fear this God and you should be joyful that you have been, you have had this revelation of this God to you, right? And so now all the earth, all of the earth is called to recognize and joyfully worship this God, not just cower in fear, not just be afraid, but to recognize this God, because this God, the only thing that's separating the nations and anybody from God, including you here today is your sin. That's the only thing separating you from God. God is gracious and compassionate and merciful. He will accept anybody who repents of their sins and comes to him. And these nations were called to respond to God in this way. They were called to reject their sin, reject their false idols they were worshiping, reject the false gods they were worshiping, and believe that this fearful and awesome God is the one true God. That he could be also their God, right? So that's what God was doing to these nations. So God was judging, but he is a good judge. These, these nations are wicked. These nations are evil. Like, I don't want you to read this and think that these are just innocent bystanders in Canaan being overthrown by an evil regime, like with Russia and Ukraine, right? God is not Vladimir Putin. The, the nations surrounding Israel are filled with Vladimir Putins. They are the wicked, child-sacrificing, Baal-worshipping, depraved people that God in his mercy comes and says, you are worshiping false gods. You are living in utter depravity. And you must believe in the one true God. And so God rightly judges and punishes them through Israel's military conquest. And yet, again, God's heart is so full of compassion and love. Like you have to see that in this psalm. These people are called to praise and love God. And this is not like a putting a gun to your head and saying, you must praise me or else. He is saying, I love you and I am judging you for your good, but you must repent of your sins. And that's the call for anybody here who does not believe in Jesus, does not believe in God, is to repent is to go to this almighty and fearful God and yet know that he is compassionate and loving and he desires you to turn from your sin. And so Restoration Church, we should sing praises that this God is our king. We should clap our hands. We should be in awe that the most fearful and the highest God is our God because that's ultimately the good news of this psalm, right? This, this fearful and amazing God who has all the power in the world, who can subdue nations with, with just just in an instant, he is their God. He has chosen them to be his people. He has given them the land. And even to the surrounding nations, he is saying, you can come and worship me. You can come and worship me. And so that's what the psalmist is calling the people to do here, to praise God, to be joyful, not just that God is good, not just that God is loving, but that he is almighty, that he is fearful, that he is awesome.
That should cause us to be joyful. And we need to look back and do what the psalmist is calling us to do, which is to look back and see what God has done in history, how he mightily saved his people from Egypt, how he subdued the nations in Canaan, how even stories of David killing Goliath. And we need to see that that God who acted on Israel thousands of years ago is also acting right now for us. And he is on our side. This unstoppable and almighty God can be your God. Romans 8 says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for you, who can be against you? The entire world with every army can be against us. But if God is for us, then their opponents mean nothing because they are all, as Isaiah 40 says, the nations are like drops in a bucket. Think about that. The nations are like water drops going in a bucket. Isaiah 40 also says that the nations are like sand on a seashore, little grains. That is how almighty and powerful God is. And that's the God that's on our side. That's the God who sent his son, Jesus, to save us. And so this reality should give us hope and joy every single day that God is our God and he is so almighty and powerful. God, he is infinitely more holy and good and wise and loving and patient than my baseball coach, than your father, than your favorite teacher, than whoever wins the the mayor's election in D.C. He is the ultimate authority and he is so perfect. This God has proven through his works that he is a fearful and an awesome God and we should rejoice. That's what the psalm is calling us to do. So that's verses one to five. We're looking back at Israel's history and seeing that through their military conquest, God has shown that he is God of all the earth. He is king of all the earth. So now let's look down at verses six through nine. I'm going to reread them really fast for us. Verses six through nine. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits in his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. So the focus now is a shift to focusing on the present reign of God over the nations. God, he is seated on his holy throne. He is governing the universe at the time of this psalm and right now and forever. He is reigning. He has no rival that can overtake him. His throne is not in danger of being overthrown. He has no counselors. He receives no wisdom from anybody. He doesn't have any limit to his power and authority. And he does whatever he wishes at any time he wishes in any way he wishes. So these are the truths that we need to be reminded of right now. So not just that God was king clearly in the old Testament through these acts or not just that God is going to be King in heaven one day. But I think that this church needs to be reminded of right now is that God is King right now, right now, life on earth right now. It's full of sorrows. It's full of things that bring utter confusion to the Christian. There are injustices. There are frustrations. There is death. There is horrible things that are results of sin. And I'll be honest. I find almost every day. It's hard to believe that God is King to functionally believe that God is king. I find it hard to believe every single day. When I go to AU and I see 99% of the campus totally rejecting God, um, when I look in the news and I see the horrible acts of injustice going around around, around the world, when I see my neighbors rejecting God, my family rejecting God, it's hard to believe that God is reigning when Ukraine is being invaded, when children are being killed in their schools. It's hard to believe that God is reigning when we hear reports of sexual assault around churches in our country. It's really hard sometimes to believe that God is presently reigning over the world. And friends, that's why we are here at church today. Whether you know it or not, we need this church, not just Restoration Church. We need good churches. We need God's word 
to keep us believing that God is king. We need those two things. We need God's word. We need God's people. These will keep you functionally believing that God is the king. It will help you day by day to live under the reality of God's kingship. Because we need each other's encouragement and accountability and prayers to believe and live out this reality. We need to help each other follow God as king and submit to him in the midst of a broken and heartbreaking world. And we need people to point out our own rebellion against God. Even as believers who worship God as king, we need people to boldly and lovingly say, like, that's not how a servant of the king acts. That's not how someone who follows God the king should act. We need each other, and we need God's word. I hope as you've seen, this, this whole Bible that we have, this beautiful Bible, is a powerful testimony that God is king. The God who crushed the Egyptians in the sea, who knocked down Jericho when the people shouted, who subdued the nations, who used tiny Israel to conquer military strongholds, is the same God who is acting and reigning today. And this is a truth that you need to remind yourself of every single day. I was thinking about this, like we see all these signs right now for the election for the, for the mayor right now. Every time you see a physical sign advertising who to vote for in the, the mayor election or for the council, use that to remind you God is king, which might be overwhelming because I see some yards with 500 signs, you know, vote for this person, vote for this person, vote for this. It's like, God is king, God is king, God is king. God, like remind yourself that God is king as you see those signs. And that's just one way, but we need to just day by day be reminding ourselves and each other It might not feel like it. It might not seem like it, but God really is the king over the universe. We have a limited understanding of so much that's going on, all the brokenness, all the rejection of God. We can't understand that in light of God being king. But what we have in the Bible is a powerful testimony. God really is king, even over really bad things happening, even when things happen that don't make any sense in your life. And you need to remind yourself of something else besides the fact that God is king. We actually have knowledge and revelation from God that the recipients of Psalm 47 did not have. We have a further revelation. We have a more complete revelation of what it means that God is king. So around the time of this Psalm, we find a stunning and wonderful promise that God makes to David. It's in second Samuel chapter seven, verse 13 and 14 should be on the screen. God makes this promise to King David. He says this, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father's, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Notice this promise of a people, a place and a kingly presence. God is going to raise up a descendant of David who is going to rule over the people forever. This person will in some mysterious way be an eternal king. And then we turn to the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and we read this in the very first book, the very first verse, the book of the the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus Christ is the offspring of David who will reign forever as king. He is the offspring of Abraham who will ultimately be the one to bring in God's eternal kingdom. Now, the people in Jesus' time thought that this, this ruler, this Messiah is what they they gave him this title would be a political and military ruler like David, like Joshua, like how Moses led them through the Red Sea. They thought he would conquer and subdue nations like we read about in Psalm 47. But this is not what Jesus did. His mission, which I think is so is summarized so beautifully by the musical group Beautiful Eulogy, Beautiful Eulogy. They say this, Jesus came not to conquer kingdoms, but to conquer hearts and restore men back to what they were intended for. 
He came not to conquer kingdoms, but to conquer hearts. Because as we saw from the Old Testament, the reason God's people are unable to worship God as he deserves is because of their sin. And their sin, they are unable to change the disposition they have towards God, which is one of rebellion. They cannot change it on their own. And we see that all throughout the Old Testament. They have the most gracious God giving them all these spiritual blessings of, of his word and his presence, of good leaders like Moses and David and Joshua. And the people just cannot stop sinning against God. They just they cannot stop rejecting God as king. And so what the people need is not a ruler to come and conquer other nations, which during Jesus' time was these Romans who were oppressing them. What they needed was for their own hearts to be subdued, their own hearts to be conquered, to be conquered by the love and mercy of God. And that was what Jesus' mission was. Jesus came and subdued our hearts by his great love of dying on the cross for us. This sacrificial love of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins can melt and change the hardest of sinful hearts. And his resurrection proved that his mission was a success. He came and subdued us. We are God's enemies. He came and subdued us, not with physical force, but with his perfect love. That's what he did. There is nothing more powerful than the love of Christ seen in the cross. Jesus has loved us and died for us to bring us back to God, to make us his willing and joyful subjects. Not those who rebel against the king, who actually is the king, but joyfully submitting to the king. And listen to how the apostle Paul describes how Christ is now the king of all the earth. Philippians 2, chapter 6, or Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, talking about Jesus. It says, who though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. This verse, these verses give us a whole new lens of understanding Psalm 47. Jesus Christ, I hope you see that transition there. He has been highly exalted by God. That's how Psalm 47 ends. He is highly exalted. Now we're reading, God has highly exalted Jesus Christ. At the feet of Jesus, every single knee is bowing and the whole earth confessing that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the King. Jesus is worthy of the same exaltation that God receives, the same praise and honor that God receives. And in a mysterious and awesome way, he has been given all the authority in heaven and on earth and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father as king forever. And now, because of God's mercy and grace going out through the gospel, all peoples from any nation can truly worship God in spirit and in truth. They don't need to join up with the people of Israel who have the tabernacle to worship God truly. They can worship anywhere because God has come in Jesus and his gospel is spreading throughout the whole world. And verse 9 in Psalm 47 beautifully foreshadows this reality. It says, The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. So if you know the, the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, the people gather together to build a huge tower because they want to glorify themselves. They want people to see how great they are. So they come to build a great tower to make a name for themselves. What we see here in Psalm 47, this promise, is that these peoples are coming together not to praise their own name, but they're coming to be one people under God's rule, 
to worship the one true God, not to praise themselves, but to praise God. And so they're no longer going to be outside the covenant. They're no longer going to be people who are subdued by physical military force, but they're going to be people who are subdued by the gospel of Jesus Christ and by his great love. Jesus is the most perfect authority figure, and he is on the throne. He is on the throne. Philippians 2 is describing who your God and king is. How can we not clap and sing for joy that Jesus is our king after all he has done for us? And he is reigning right now. And I could not end a sermon at this church without enduring Nathan's wrath if I didn't talk about heaven, where Jesus is going to reign physically forever on a restored heaven with his blood-bought people. Listen to this from Revelation 21. This is a future. This is our future as Christians. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. We see here so clearly God's people living in God's place with God and Christ the King. All suffering is gone. All evil is eradicated. All tears are wiped away. And we will be singing praises to God and to the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 to 8 says this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And the bride has made herself ready. So this is the song our church and all peoples from out the history of the world who love and worship God will sing alongside millions of angels. Hallelujah for the Lord God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Amen. Let us pray right now as I finish this sermon. Father, we thank you that you are reigning. We thank you that you have come to your people. You came to them in Genesis. You you were with them all throughout the Old Testament, God. You dwell with them in the tabernacle. You, you gave them your blessing and promises, God. And you gave the ultimate promise to be with us forever in Jesus. That Jesus has come as the forever king. He has came and he has conquered many of our hearts. And I pray if anybody here does not believe and love Jesus, would they be conquered by the love of Jesus? Would they be subdued by the love of Jesus? And we thank you, God, that we will reign with you and live with you forever in heaven one day. And in the meantime, God, will we help each other to believe you are king? On the hard days, on the good days, would we help and encourage each other to believe that you are king and will we go to your word for comfort and hope. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.